I have always enjoyed con- connect the dots. I have always uh, enjoyed it for two reasons. Number one, it's, it's easy. Um, one, two, three, four, A, B, C. Second of all, I've always been very curious about what is the picture once it's all done. I want to attempt for the next few minutes to connect some dots with you concerning the temptation, concerning the makeup of, of man himself. Man, as created by God, is a trichotomy, meaning he is three. He is body, soul, and spirit. With his body, he or we relate to the material world around us. With our souls, we relate to our fellow man. And with our spirit, and I want to make a very important point here, when Jesus, when God breathed into mankind the spirit, it wasn't God's spirit, it was human spirit. Very important for you to recognize that. It was human spirit. And with that spirit, he was to relate to God himself. Now, the the unfolding of these three is very important as far as Eve's reaction to the original temptation and how Jesus was tempted by the devil. Now, what happened next was that within the soul of man, there are three aspects. There is emotion, that we are emotional creatures, that we are rational creatures in our intellect, we are able to think. And thirdly, we, are, we have a will. Unlike any other creation of God, we have a choice that can be made based on the others. We have a will in all these things. We feel, we think, and we choose. It's what makes us distinctively human. Now, G. Campbell Morgan says at this point a fascinating concept, which I agree with. He says, when man sinned and fell in the garden, his emotions were deadened. We still are emotional creatures, but not like we were designed to be. We were meant to feel deeper than we feel. Second of all, we are rational, and that rationale darkened. We still are able to think, but we think in terms of darkness. We have been darkened intellectually. That's why man can't find God on his own. He must be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, our will was degraded. Not gone completely. That would make us hyper-Calvinists. We have a choice. We can still make a choice. Even though it's degraded a bit. When man sinned and when we sinned, we became soulish. In other words, we were created to look outside of ourselves to our creator for life. But when we sinned, these three were affected and we, we, our eyeballs became ingrown. And we began to focus on self. And we became soulish. And the soul that was meant and the spirit that was meant and the life that was meant to reach out to God was now self-absorbed, self-focused. Selfish, if you will. This is human nature and human life. This is what Eve reacted to in the temptation in the garden. She saw that it was good for 
food, the tree. This deals with her rational mind. It makes sense that this would be good for food for me. Second of all, she saw that the tree was pleasant to look at. This deals with her emotional life, something she had pleasure on the inside. And thirdly, she saw it was a fruit in order to make her wise. This deals with the will of making choices and decisions. That she would discover her destiny and who she was meant to be by eating this fruit. But of course, it all backfired because it was a disobedience to God's will not to touch that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now just a small side note before we go on. There was a second tree in that garden, the tree of life. God never meant to exclude the tree of the knowledge of good and evil forever, just for a time, until through a series of obedience to God, they would be allowed to eat the tree of life. Once they had ever eaten that tree of life, then they could handle the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God knows good and evil. He always chooses the good because he's the source of life. And knows never to sin and choose the evil. By the way, these two trees will show up in Revelation at the end of time. Now I digress. Let me, let me move on to when Jesus declared himself the way, the truth, and the life. Notice he reverses a bit the order saying that the most important thing about him is that you believe he is the way. That deals with the will, the volition and the choices of life, the will. I am the way. I am your way. I am your authority. I am your king. Second of all, he said, I am the truth. That deals with the rational mind. I am the truth. We learn truth once we receive Jesus as the way. No one knows truth until they come to Jesus Christ. And then we begin to understand truth through Christ alone. And thirdly, not less important, but in the order, he says, I am the life. Speaking of passion and emotion. There he is presenting himself for the solution to the reversal of the curse. And there it is. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. These These three things bounce up all over the place. He is the king over our wills. He is the prophet preaching truth to our rational minds. And he is the priest bringing the sacrifices of our emotional praise back to God. This is what Jesus encountered. I'm trying to connect these dots so you see this all together as one. When he encountered the temptations of the devil... The first thing that the devil brought to him was to appeal to his rational mind in turning stones into loaves of bread. The man had not eaten for 40 days. He was hungry. And Satan said, use your natural power in order to supply the physical need of your life. Nothing's wrong with bread. Nothing's wrong with eating. But the will of God for him at that point was not to eat. He put the will of God above. He passed the first test that Eve failed. The second Adam would conquer at all three points. 
Last week's kingdom that was offered to Jesus by the devil, and we see it throughout Christianity as the temptation to the children of God throughout the centuries, was to create a kingdom that was selfish, self-centered. That the gospel might be presented as the healing to our aching bones and joints, that the gospel might be presented as prosperity to our finances, and that he might supply our physical needs in primary. I haven't brought the lamp out in a long time, but this is what this gospel has presented. The God of a genie in a bottle. And if you rub him just the right way in prayer, he will pop out and grant you whatever wishes you want. If you formulate a lifestyle of obedience, you rub the lamp and the gospel will do for you what you want it to do for you. It'll make life a smooth path. This is a lie from Satan and it is told to countless congregants of churches all over the world. It is a temptation to believe that we are the center of the gospel and the whole focus is meeting our needs in the material realm. He promised us nothing of the sorts. So Jesus conquered at that point. Beware of the temptation of believing the gospel has anything to do with making life smooth for you. If you want a, an illustration, just look at the lives of the, the first 12 men who followed him. All of them except one ended up on the end of a butcher's block, martyred, burned, stabbed, cut in, cut in half, all except John. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. We pick up the second of the temptations that's going to deal with another area that Eve failed, that Christ will be victorious. Notice verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Well, where is that? Most likely it is the corner of the temple of Solomon's porch and the royal gate. Because on that corner, if you were able to get up on that corner of the temple, you would look down at 450 foot drop to the valley Kidron and the Kidron stream below. 450 foot drop at that point. He puts him up, I take it literally on the pinnacle of that temple, and says to him, if you are the son of God, and remember, He doesn't approach him as the son of man, but as the son of God. He is trying to get him to use his prerogatives as the son of God to do something supernatural. But Jesus is not facing the temptations of the devil as the son of God, because that would do us no good. He faces the tempter as the son of man, because we are man. And if that victory is to ever be ours, he must face it as fully man. But Satan would ignore that point. How subtle. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Do something spectacular. 
do something amazing. They'll all see it. Because if you throw yourself down, and then he quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you. And he quotes another part of the chapter. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, Satan quoted the verses accurately, perfectly, except he left out the context. So I want us to take the time to go back to Psalm 91, and I want to show you what the liar, the deceiver, left out, because he always does that. Psalm 91. Flip back in your Bible to Psalm 91. We're going to go back to the Old Testament a couple different times, because Jesus is always going, also going to quote back to him a verse. And we'll see Jesus has it right in context, but not Satan. Psalm 91. And in order to get the context, we must go back to verse 9 of chapter 91 of the Psalms. Because Satan skips right to chapter 11, or verse 11 and verse 12. But the context that this is found in begins back in verse 9 of 91 Psalms. Notice, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. Notice the context is the dwelling place of God, the will of God, submission to God himself. I have sheltered myself under the Almighty, a reference to Jesus Christ. I don't move independently from my Father. I am in his shelter. I am in his refuge. I move when he moves, as we just sang. In that context, notice verse 10, No evil shall be allowed to fall before you. No plague come near your tent. And he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Satan left out the context of submission to the Father. The liar always does that. You know, when you hear heresies, false teachings, you can always go back to the Scripture and find a place where they veered from the contextual evidence before them. Uh, In a couple weeks, we'll have an ice cream social in July, and I'm going to teach a lesson of how to twist the scriptures in order for them to say anything you want them to say. Yeah, I'm going to help you out with that. How to twist the scripture to make them say anything you want them to say. That's in July. But back to the passage in Matthew. Take a look with me to the passage in Matthew. Jesus answers him in verse 7. Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So let's go back there. He says to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Well, what reference does he reference? Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
We'll look at verse 16. Deuteronomy, that's a way, way back in the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll begin down at verse 16. Give you plenty of time to turn there because I need plenty of time to turn there. Well, in in order to get the context, again, you have to go further back. Everybody at Deuteronomy chapter 6, take a look at verse 10. This is the context of the command. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, there's the context. When you go into the land of promise, Jew, when you eat the fruit and the milk and honey, when you have a good land and you're, you prosper in that land and you gain victory over the enemies, there's going to be a specific temptation you may fall to. We'll see what it is in a minute. But I want you to see the context for us because we know that Canaan land is a picture of the victorious Christian life. This is where God wants to get us all to. In fact, that's where we are right now in Christ. Israel, moving into the land, is a picture of us moving into victory. This is why he was tempted. This is why he was victorious, so that we might gain in that victory. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The context is, and you can read it through the next five verses, it's just talking about going out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, There's going to be gods in the land. Notice verse 16. And you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Mishah. Well, now we have to go to another reference. What is the temptation of Mishah? Go back further to Exodus chapter 17. You're already back there. Go back to Exodus chapter 17. And this is the meat of the message of the gospel that Satan attempted to get Jesus to embrace. It is in Exodus 17, and we'll begin in verse 2. The reference is the water from the rock. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on to the wilderness of sin by stages. Verse 2, therefore the people, they got thirsty. They wanted evidence and they got thirsty. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. They got in a fuss with him. And they said to Moses, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test? Why do you tempt the Lord? Verse 3, but the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us, this is an ongoing echoing chorus, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us, to starve us, that we may die from thirst? Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord and said, what shall I do with this people? (laughs) They are almost ready to stone me. And there's a million of them, and that's a lot of stones. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with some of the elders of Israel. 
And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. And, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and called the place Mishah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord. Now notice how they tested the Lord. It's, it's, it's the key to understanding what Jesus said to the devil. It's key to understanding how we may be tempted as Christians with the life of Christ in us. Notice the phrase, by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is he here or is he not here? I am thirsty. I want to see something. I want to feel something. I want to experience God. I'm not sure he's here. I want to see some manifestation of evidence that God is among us. He said to to Jesus, cast yourself down. Present to them a sensational gospel. A gospel of signs and wonders and amazing feats. If you need a sign and a wonder to know God is here, you don't believe he's here. Caleb, go ahead and stand for me. I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to pray. You can keep your eyes open. Lord, I pray that Caleb would come into the church service. I, would, I pray that he would be here. I pray that I would sense his presence. I pray that I would just somehow know that he's here. Lord, I want to... All I had to do was open my eyes, and there he is. He was here all along. Thank you. That's why we don't open services asking for the Lord's presence, because he showed up when we showed up. He is here. We don't need feelings and emotions. We don't need to sense him here. If a dad, Father's Day's coming, if a dad stands up and says to his family, I am your father. I am the man of this house. If he has to say it, he's not. I worked for a fellow named Mr. Bodeway years ago, Rodney Bodeway. I'll never forget him. He was a tough boss. I say he was fair, but he was tough. He was the kind of boss when he, showed, when he drove in the parking lot and that old Dodge pickup, I still can see it. Everyone's stomach just got a little tight. You knew Rodney was, you knew, I can't even say his name, first name. You knew Mr. Bodeway was the boss. You didn't work fast enough, he had a, he had a watch. And he would, he would watch you, and if he wouldn't think you were going fast enough, he'd just start doing this with his clock. And then he'd start doing this back and forth. Back, we called it the Bodeway Shuffle. He's back and forth and back and forth. You knew he was the boss. You knew his presence was there. The gospel presented was a sensational gospel. Let me read to you some from Oswald Chambers in a good piece. 
He says this. Our Lord never used signs and wonders to get a man off his guard and then say, now believe in me. Our Lord never once used signs and wonders to impress or to get a man off his guard. Jesus Christ never coerced anybody. He never used supernatural powers or the apparatus of revival. He refused to stagger a man's wits into submitting to him. He always put the case to the man in cold blood. Take your time and consider what you are doing. Jesus Christ is engaged in making disciples on the internal sense. Consequently, he never never entraps a man by rapture. Enamors him out of his wits by fascination. Instead, he puts before him himself before the man in the boldest, boldest light conceivable. A man must believe in Jesus Christ by the deliberate determination of his choice. The temptation, now listen to this, the temptation of the church is to go into, quote, show business. Our Lord told his disciples they would be witnesses unto him. Not by emotionalism. Not by sensationalism. Not by signs and wonders. This gospel is tempting and we see it all over the place. Got a couple things I want you to remember. Number one. A decision to follow Christ must come from a man's will, not his emotions. How many times have we stirred people up with this fiery sermon, got them all emotional, they tromped down the front, cried out to God, and there was nothing there? You come to Christ, you must come by an act of the will. Not because we design a service with snowflakes falling out of the ceiling and pizzazz and and, 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 an oratory guy who does somersaults. Kyle Johns was at a youth camp when he was a teenager. That's Ed and Cheryl's son. Kyle? What did I say? Yes, we have two Kyles. <laughs> Kyle Johns is definitely not Ed Cobb's son. All right. <laughs> Sorry. We'll edit that out before we put it online. I promise you that. <laughs> Kyle Cobb was at a youth camp as a teenager. And uh, it was uh, a charismatic youth camp. And as they went up and down the, the lines, they were hitting the young people in the head. You know, they do this and then they fall out. They do down the line. They, well, they got to Kyle and they hit him in the head. And he just stood there and looked at him. The guy stepped down. He wait. He didn't fall. And he stepped back and hit it again. Kyle stared back at him. Finally, Kyle said, "I'm Baptist. I'm not going anywhere." But closer to home. Aren't we guilty of 
desiring to see something, to sense something. Faith is a quiet thing. Faith is a silent thing. Number two, the need to see or feel something is born from unbelief, not belief. I was traveling up through Georgia years ago, and I I came through a small town, and as small towns go in Georgia, it had a railroad track through the town, and there was a train that had obviously been sitting there for a long time, had rust all around the wheels and wasn't moving anywhere. And I noticed the, the engine of the train was five or six cars back, and in front of the engine were, were cabooses. And the first caboose was small. Was it a big caboose? And the next caboose was a little bigger. They had four cabooses in front of that engine, and every caboose got a little bigger as it went along. And I'm fascinated with this. Well, I stopped at a local store, and I asked the guy, what's going on with this train? It's been sealed here, set here. I can see the rust all over the other cabooses. He said, oh, we're going to get that thing going. I said, how are you going to get it going? He said, we got, a, we got a bigger caboose coming next month. It's the biggest caboose that we've ever seen. We're going to come, and we're going to hook it on the front of that train, and then it's going to go. I said, sir, I know you're from Georgia, but I want to try to make some sense to you. If you're from Georgia, forgive me. (laughs) Cabooses don't pull the train. They're meant to come along at the end of the train. You're not going to get it. Oh, yes, yeah, one more bigger. See, the problem with signs and wonders is you begin small and you got to have something bigger and something bigger and emotionalism and some kind of sensational moment. You gotta, but none of that pulls Christianity. None of that pulls our Christian life and feeds us. It's the life of Jesus Christ in us by faith that causes the train to go down the track. Now, I'm not against emotionalism at all. I'm not against signs and wonders. Jesus said signs and wonders will follow those who trust me. It's not my focus. The greatest sign is when God saves somebody from sin and they get born again. That's the sign, man. That's something to do somersaults over. But God does heal. I've watched him heal. I've watched him bless people. Find out. I've watched all that. But it is never meant to be the engine of the thing. And it becomes idolatry when it does. It just absolutely does. And it's the temptation that Jesus absolutely refused. He refused to go down, forgive the pun, but that particular track. I'm not going to beat the guys up, but I will say this. I will give one illustration because they're out there and you see them all. You can turn on your television and radio. You can hear this stuff all the time. But I was flipping through the channels the other day, and I want to make that point because I do not listen to these guys. I do not spend 30, 40 minutes listening to a sermon. I don't waste my time with it. But when I'm flipping around and it goes to the religious channel and one of them's on there, I'll listen to a line or two. Usually that's all it takes. So they had this Duplantis fellow the other night. Yes. Don't waste your time with any of this stuff. This is what he said. Literally what he said. He said, I had a conversation with Jesus himself. And Jesus, now right there I should tell you something. Jesus told me this, that he was God. But he, but that Jesus said, I am God, not Jesse. I am God, but I do not have the authority to kill you. You have that authority in your own mouth. 
So in other words, what's in this guy's mouth has a higher authority than God himself. This is what he said. This is the signs and wonders to an extreme that we hear today. By the way, Steve Williams wants to take a love offering up at the end of the service for his fourth jet that he wants to buy. I've had to turn Steve down. I said, Steve, we're not going to do that. Steve said, well, I'll just send a check. I'll just send the biggest check I could send. That's all we'll talk about. You see this all the time. It is always there. Last principle, and we're done. Is that the last one? Is there any more? There it is. True faith is quiet and it's restful. True faith knows he's here. True faith knows he's present. At your lowest moment, when it seems like it's a billion miles away, faith doesn't need to experience a thing. It knows. It knows. Quietly, it knows. Selfish kingdom. I meant to have a bottle of bubbles this morning. I'll have it next time I preach. And a sensational gospel. Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord. Don't test him. Because that is sin. He conquered so we don't fall to that stuff. There's a third presentation of a third variety of the gospel. We'll see it the next time we preach on this third temptation. We have within our Christianity in this world. By the way, you know why those are successful? Do you know, do you know why a selfish gospel is extremely successful? If you're, going to mark by, if you're going to mark success by volume, they are very successful. I had a gentleman who recently came to teach on a Wednesday night, ask me before we started, he said, is your church growing? Well, that's a loaded question to ask any preacher. I know exactly what he was talking about. I ask you, is our church growing? What's the first thing comes to our minds? Numbers. That's what he wanted to know. I succumbed to his temptation. I said, yes, we're growing. And we are. Maybe not as quickly as what he was referencing. And if you want to do a selfish gospel, do you know why people flock to that? Do you know why those auditoriums are full when you see them on TV? Because this is what people want to hear. It appeals to the flesh. It appeals to the soulish nature of the fall. It's only till we come to the way that we understand the truth. That Christ didn't come to meet our physical needs. He didn't come to amaze us. He came to deliver us from sin. To deliver us from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin. This is the gospel he fought through to get to, to die on a cross for us. All these methods are meant to keep Jesus Christ away from the cross. To die for our sins. Lord Jesus, we pause and we thank you for the amazing victory that you worked and wrought in this wilderness when tempted by the devil to present to the people signs and wonders and amazements. 
the spectacular, you refused. You refused because you wouldn't hoodwink us into the kingdom of God. That you respected and loved mankind enough to make sure that the decision that we make was one out of a heart that was ready to yield to the king, to the way, the truth, and the life. May we as believers in this day fully reject the gospel of self-centered pursuits. May we see that for the sin that it is, because you said it was sin, you rejected it. May we see the sensationalism of signs and wonders and the need, need to feel something and see something to believe you're here. May we reject that for the simplicity of a faith that knows you are here.